0: Welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart at the center of enterprise IT. With me this week are Lilac and Zach, Mike sends his apologies, and we thought we'd start this week by talking about a couple of stories uh, that have been in the news, and apparently both Google Stadia and Vimeo are pivoting to the enterprise market, which is weird. I was in Google Stadia, if you haven't heard of it before is a remote game streaming service. The idea is that you can play video games in your web browser. The actual video game is being executed in a Google data center somewhere and you just get a video stream sent to you and you know a control stream back to the Google data center. And it launched and it didn't quite flop, but close enough that Google lost interest in the way they do usually when it's a chat protocol. Uh, What's
1: this year's chat client? (laughs) (laughs) It's due out in June.
0: Right, exactly. Or at uh, Google I.O. in May. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. Uh, And the other one was Vimeo. Vimeo, best known as YouTube's uh, slightly more friendly alternative, and build itself at the beginning as the indie creator-friendly alternative to YouTube, gave creators a lot more control uh, than YouTube did, and uh, didn't monetize in quite the same way, and therefore is very much an also-ran, unfortunately, in the market. Apparently, it got bought up a couple of years ago and changed its mission statement, and now we're seeing that come to fruition. And they are also pivoting to the enterprise market, um, the interesting bit with Vimeo that I called out on Twitter as well is they're apparently going around the top bandwidth users on the platform, this is the the nominal excuse for what they're doing, and hitting them up for more money. But uh, one of the people who's quoted in the article that we'll put in the show notes is someone who has an average of 150 views on her videos. And if uh, someone with 150 views is in your top 1% of bandwidth users, I think your platform has bigger problems. <laughs> and youtube was, people are laughing themselves silly right now one hundred and fifty views that that doesn 't even qualify you for monetization at all on youtube i don 't think
1: yeah, but Vimeo is used internally in enterprises, so surely those statistics are 't tracked
0: right, and that 's the theory that they they decided to double down on that, and there's a whole bunch of um, you know u i mock up tools and things like that uh, where the output is um hidden, obfuscated, whatever uh video that usually lives on Vimeo, as you say.
1: Yeah, so it doesn't I, I think we gotta compare apples to apples in these situations, right? Like it, I I would be shocked if the company was hanging their hat on 150 views, right? Like I think I think they're they mar- yeah, it's a just completely different market. And but that market is not um transparent, right?
0: No at all. It's
1: sort of like enterprise Dropbox, right? Like when when you talk about these markets where you've got a public version of something like a Dropbox or a box and a private version of the something where you could have your own enterprise Dropbox, which is, as we know, like one of the um, cute classic. ideas that keep showing up, but you don't measure terabytes under management as just the public piece of it, right? And you're not getting the data on the private piece. It just isn't a thing because nobody's going to tell you that stuff. And so. Uh, no, exactly. No, I think. Weird.
0: So in the case of Vimeo, it's, it's a valid move it just clashes with their initial statement. They, they did explicitly advertise themselves back in the day as being the indie creator-friendly thing uh, in implicit opposition to YouTube. And now they've decided to double down on this other market, presumably because being indie-friendly uh, wasn't quite paying the bills. And right. corporates are generating a ton more video these days. I've got several in my inbox that I have to review.
1: Yes, much to my chagrin, I feel the same way. But like, I, I, I just don't really think, I also wonder, maybe this is just a branding and positioning thing, but I, I am curious, like in my mind, like is being positioned as the indie um, uh, authorship controls video platform actually not additive to their ability to succeed in corporate, right?
0: No, at all. It's completely orthogonal.
1: Do you I, think so? I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I think that maybe... And being
0: not YouTube is not a being around. not
1: YouTube, right? But exactly. being indie
0: friendly, I think, is orthogonal. The the kind of artsy vibe that Vimeo certainly uses.
1: Artsy, to have. maybe. But like, I also feel like the people that are making these decisions inside organizations are often the creatives, It's often in marketing, it's often people that they're those the three people that have your beloved Macintosh computers on their lab, on their desktop, right? Like, they they are. it is it's actually a a different. Your buyer is not the IT buyer for Vimeo inside an organization your buyer is probably in the marketing group and may or may not be able to play the banjo.
0: <laughs> oh God. Could, could be, could be. And the, where was I going with that thought? You derailed me with your banjo.
1: <laughs> so sorry.
0: <laughs> you may well be right. And we'll, we'll see. The interesting thing about Vimeo and the video markets in general is that it's so concentrated and it's concentrated for the obvious reason that, Video is very, very heavy to host. I've, uh, If the fancy took us to host this podcast ourselves, there were literally dozens of ways we could do it for pocket change because audio is small compared to video. And if it were text, I mean, forget about it. Text is effectively free unless you get you know, millions of readers. And video is not at that point yet. And so it's completely concentrated in YouTube. If you're doing anything with video, you're on YouTube, unless you're doing something extraordinarily specific. Uh, and if you're on an actual you know, cable channel or whatever, that that's the the exception to Netflix. And so I just feel a little bit sad that uh, it looks like, certainly from this news report, that Vimeo, the consumer service, which was always that audible thing that I would remember to check maybe a tenth of the time as I checked YouTube, optimistically, but always found something interesting on might be going away. You check YouTube. I subscribe to a bunch of stuff on YouTube. Yeah.
1: Really.
0: I keep telling you, I don't watch TV. That doesn't mean I don't watch video. <laughs> no, no it's
1: fine. I just like I, I think in, I think I actually don't consume video content. In certainly not professionally, very well. um And so that. Oh no, no not professionally. Oh, okay. All right. All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, we're t- we're <laughs> so talking, like, watching yeah.
1: unboxing videos of the new iPhone. Is that what's happening? <laughs>
0: It, only in private <laughs> <laughs> no they it's more you know snowboarding videos and you can put those in a corner of the screen while you're working it's a nice thing or oh, i'm they're, not
1: they're, judging live your best life
0: i yeah, mean my then, child was
1: watching unboxing videos of thomas the tank engine for years on the youtube so there you go
0: there you go exactly so but the other the other leg of this uh thesis uh, a stadia, which is also pivoting to enterprise, which is even weirder because you know a video game a streaming service does not seem like an obvious candidate uh for enterprise, but uh, that's what Google's doing with it, so we have yet to see whether this is just Google's equivalent of move to live in a farm up state. <laughs> or, or, whether Stadia ever shows up. Maybe this is going to be Google's iteration of remote desktops to hark back to previous episodes. Oh,
1: come on! Let's make it Google Second Life. That would be really good.
0: And that actually could be. You know, that, that seems like something aligned to you know what Google does.
1: Right. Like it, you need something to compete with the metaverse on the Google side. And I think what we all know about the metaverse is that if we could, if we could create enterprise metaverse. That is probably a thing. And everybody has been trying to do this for 20 years, right? I remember when I was IBM, at IBM, and I'm sure I've said this before, where everybody decided that all of our meetings were going to happen in Second Life. It was a terrible idea. Oh, but yes. but the truth is is that six months ago, my husband's company had whatever, whatever the 2021 pandemic version of that same declaration was, was created, and everybody got a little avatar and everything. And I'm just kind of curious whether that marries with a gamification idea and somebody's on the, of the mind that they can actually do Enterprise Metaverse, which sounds to me like a nightmare. But as you guys know, I usually prefer to have my camera off anyway.
0: And we keep experimenting with this uh, sort of thing. We try discords and uh, all, all the uh, Twitch channels. It's, uh, we tried in, uh, on my extended team, we tried having a regular Twitch hangout that people could pop in and out of the idea would be kind of a hang space and as far as i know that's died quietly i certainly haven't been back in there <laughs> but the only thing that sticks is slack because what everyone really wants is just irc and <laughs> keep reinventing we really IRC. Do.
1: we just want that over and over again
0: <laughs> yeah that's basically what it boils down to
1: irc did not have memes though we had ascii art but we didn't have memes
0: i actually used to have and i'm afraid i lost it an actual printed book printed on paper of emoticons as yes. we used to call them back in the day
1: yes i remember and you had to tilt your head to the side to understand to all of them exactly. it was amazing it was like eating tacos
0: i was very proud of the monkey smoking a cigar wearing a top hat
1: i'm gonna tell you that my, my lovely company that still lives in a lot of green screen worlds actually has a version of its logo that is ascii art and I, A big part of me wants a sticker of that up for my left.
0: There you go. That was a precursor of the custom Slack emojis.
1: (laughs) And we've we've come around. Okay.
0: Yeah. And if you're watching Severance on Apple TV, by the way, there's some fantastic... It's it's not actually green screen. It's light blue screen, but it's a terminal emulator callback. Plus, it's a really good show. I'm enjoying that. Anyway, moving swiftly on, something else that's back in the news and we've discussed previously is... NPM packages being sabotaged. In this case, it was to protest the war in Ukraine, which, you know, okay, fair enough, that is a valid cause. I would question whether this is an effective way of protesting it, especially when it comes to deleting files of users in the Russian Federation and Belarus just by IP address, which is not entirely infallible way of geolocating someone. And plus, this seems more likely in the aggregate to inconvenience individual users than the Russian military-industrial complex. But someone felt that they had to do something, and they did it. And so, this brings back the question of you know how to manage these things because npm is just this vast ecosystem. is not possible for any but the very, very largest organizations to actually audit their entire dependency tree in NPM. So you do have to trust at some point that somewhere down in the stack, something like this is not going on. And there are things you can do like version pinning and whatnot, but when you pin a version, that does mean you have to come back and see if a security patch has been issued against the version you pinned. So it's not a get out of jail free card, as some of its proponents argue. And I wish we could all just agree as a species uh, and <laughs> not to do this kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, and
1: so many other things dominic so many other things
0: (laughs) yes but if you're using npm well you probably already noticed the package name is node ipc and it's used in a ton of things like view.js which is uh the one of the most uh used packages in npm total so you know be aware of that go go check for this um make sure your IP address doesn't even look like it's in uh, the Russian Federation or Belarus. Uh, You should be okay. But uh, it also seems to be now a a thing that happens is NPM packages get used as vehicles for people's ideas about the world and
1: whatnot. Every area is just a corner of Hyde Park at this point, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And Say we on our podcast. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We'll
1: put our own soapbox and we will stand on it.
0: I'm going to have to find a way to insert some pigeon sound effects at this point. <laughs> I alluded to this earlier. Google I.O. is back. This is Google's big event uh, that they do uh, every year, but they're doing it in, uh, in the metaverse. They're doing it virtually. Uh, it's uh, May 11th and 12th, but it's going to be fully online except for a handful of Googlers and select partners who get to attend in person. Which does lead one to question, what does Google know that the rest of us don't, that they're still doing this online even as the rest of us are hmm, cautiously considering in-person events again. And presumably they have a whole lot of data that tells
2: them that. Well, isn't it easier just to go that route? I mean, look what's going on in China, right? They're starting to lock down again.
0: Yeah, that's the assumption is it's the Google is tracking, you know, the B A one strain or something like that, and uh they've decided to go this way. Um, uh, let's hope that uh, there's an excess of caution. I mean, to be clear, I've said before, one of the things I hope we get out of this pandemic in terms of positive results over the long term is more options to participate in events virtually. The last couple of years have seen me able to attend a whole lot more events, paradoxically, because I can attend them virtually. I don't have to arrange travel. I can actually attend two events at once as long as the actual sessions aren't conflicting with each other uh, because they're just, you know, one's a Zoom window and the other's a Citrix or whatever, a WebEx, Um, and they can switch back and forth pretty easily. And I hope that this is an option that we retain for people who can't travel for health or family obligations or financial reasons or what have you for access to events. But I was also hoping that we'd get back to physical events uh, because there's something you do get from being in person that you don't get from attending remotely. You get 90% of the benefit, I would say, of the big keynote sessions, the sessions delivered from the stage where you're just sitting in the audience taking notes quietly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get most of the benefit of that just from being at home, uh, sitting in front of your computer, taking notes quietly. What you miss out on is the hallway track and meeting people and running into people and the random session that you attend because you have a one hour gap between the two sessions you did want to attend. And it would be weird to just sit around in in a hallway. And so you go in on something that looks marginally promising and turns out to be fascinating. That's all the stuff you don't do with remote events. With remote events, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to these three sessions out of 175 that are the key ones I want to attend and the others I won't even look at.
1: Right.
0: And so it's it's a very, very different experience.
1: I'm actually hoping that we take forward that element of hybrid that allows yeah. the reach to be bigger. Um, I, I do agree that some small part of me is yearning for a day when I'm waiting indefinitely in the Starbucks line at the Venetian again. But <laughs> I, I really feel like...
0: There's so many better places for coffee and not even far from that Starbucks. There's like an neatly around the corner in the Rotunda.
1: There is an Ely around the corner of the Rotunda, actually. And I like the gelato place, but next to the big love sign. You know what, honestly? Yes. Like, it has really, really been a very long time since I was in Vegas. And I have finally found that my heart yearns for it again. Um, but here we are. <laughs> but I do feel You've like You've been at home too long. <laughs> I have been at home so long that Vegas feels like a really appealing alternative. Um, I, I do think, though, that, that you're absolutely right, Dominic. And I, I don't think that we have yet solved the hallway the, the serendipitous component of events and of, and frankly, any in-person interaction has not been fixed or solved. There is no serendipity in Slack either, right? And that's just actually unfortunate. That's the piece that, as I've returned to the office and we've had a big week of like 20 people here um, and occasionally smiling and saying hi to somebody you didn't expect and learning something new or, or learning something about them has just been so delightful and like how
0: tall or short they are you, well yeah. realized and over webcams full
1: disclosure i'm an absolutely short human um but but yes like that, that that's that's the sort of fun of it that i i don't know i am sure the google show will be wonderful and i'm sure they will bring to bear all the technology in the world via stadia with
0: uh, not vimeo not google they, they'll be doing it with youtube that's right with youtube <laughs> that's right it's gonna be great that's a trick yes and Things are starting to emerge For those who don't know, I moderated a panel back in November at mongodb.local London, in which we had people in the room with their microphones being passed around and sanitized between one person and the next because yes, we're still in that uh, that time. Uh, but we also had people who were sending questions in remotely, so I was on stage juggling uh, looking at an iPad which had the questions coming in and keeping an eye in the room to see who was raising their hand. I flatter myself that we made it work. And I think it was uh, as good as it could be in terms of an experience for for that sort of hybrid audience. And that's the sort of thing that I hope we keep because it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that the remote portion was you got a video screen of the keynote and that's it, off you go. You did not get to be in the audience for the Ask Me Anything panel, or you might get the to right. highlights.
1: We actually have been doing that in our town halls at work. We've got some sort of schema by which you can ask questions and then and then sort of punch up those questions. And I know that there's multiple products that solve for that.
0: We actually built one internally.
1: Did you? Yes, yeah. because that's the right answer.
0: Yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: If you've got engineers sitting around board
2: How did you build it, Dominic? Come on, functions or...? It wasn't me. It
0: was built on MongoDB Tech. Uh, Of course it was. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was was probably some engineer who got to be in their bonnet, or maybe it was an intern in a hackathon. I forget the details.
2: Mm. Which is now partnered with AWS, right? And I'm sure you can't really say too much about it, but now you're partnered with AWS, right?
0: I mean, we always were. This is a doubling down of the partnership, and it's kind of the culmination of a bunch of moves. AWS is super interesting uh, from a partnership perspective. MongoDB, for those who don't know, we'll put the link to the press release in the show notes, announced a strengthening of the AWS partnership, new go to market initiatives uh, with AWS salespeople selling MongoDB as a first party product and being fully compensated on it, which is always the key to making these things work. Salespeople, they weren't. I, you know, with, with all the love for salespeople, but they're, they're in it for the money. And if uh, they'll go for the easiest route to Wait, that what? <laughs> <laughs> The way you get salespeople to do, that, do things is you architect the incentives correctly so that the water flows downhill in the direction you want. And, you know, it doesn't flood the village. I think
1: we could do a whole show about this because I actually am beginning <laughs> to be of the mind that this is folly. This is, this is, my, hmm. this is my belief. So it has long been known, and I remember in my first IBM job, actually, that I, the sales fellow that was my friend at the time, and still is my friend, hi, shout out, um, used to say coin-operated, right? And that phrase coin-operated was yeah. both somewhat somewhat derogatory, but also at the same time, a real lever, right?
0: At the time when most salesmen were men and therefore wore jackets, the, the joke was they wear jackets so you can't see the slot in the back.
1: Right. You know, we talked about this, and then, but over time I've realized that unless you're sort of a single product company, dual product like the more products you have the more regions you have the more dynamics you have the more sales models you have the more this is actually a remarkably difficult bit of math
0: absolutely you need professionals in that
1: beyond that like i i'm actually believe my hypothesis now is that it is np hard because we've got actual economic actors of with their own volition thrown into the algebraic equation and the end state is just an illusion of control
2: this notion of salespeople is old. It's antiquated. Come on, guys. And this is five, 10 years old. I mean, we've seen the introduction of technical account managers, you know, five, six, seven years ago, and they're working their way in. I mean, yeah, they're still out there, right? I'm sure you still have some but That's a little bit ridiculous. I think, in my opinion, I think that, you know, if we look at how things are being sold as well, look at the cloud, look at marketplace, you know, I guess the bigger question is, do we just need, uh, do we need a lot of salespeople or as many or do they need to change or evolve? And this is a good discussion for another show because, I think it has evolved more to the technical seller. A lot of times, the SEs, the technical, um, you know, team members in these accounts, they have all the trust because they're there for—I don't want to say the right reasons, but you know, they're there to uh, to help them, you know, uh, solve real challenges. But back to what you said, Dominic. Do not want to go back to this MongoDB thing? Um, I know you say doubling down, Dominic, but I, I think going forward in this new market and these new dynamics in, in the marketplace. I, I think a lot of these uh, startups, especially, I look at a confluent. I mean, look at their stock value. I know the whole market's taking a hit, but I think they have no choice, but to, um, uh, you know, yeah. some, some companies at least see the future and they, they know that uh, unless they continue to produce uh, serious growth, if, if they can't produce it, then, uh, somebody needs to get acquired somewhere. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I tend to think that it's going to be rough times for a lot of startups. You're not a startup, but a lot of startups, they're going to be rough times and, and they need to look at exits now, I think. But, um, That's just what I think.
0: That's certainly going to be a factor. I do agree with you there. I don't think it's going to be universal. So it was an interesting counterpoint, which was Snowflake, in their earnings report, they went out of their way to call out how hard it was to partner with uh, some of the the big cloud service providers and Hmm.
1: uh,
2: how difficult it was to do business with them. Why do you
1: think that is? Why would they call that out?
2: No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. They. Let's be clear. I mean, I I read that too, right? I mean, when you say they called it out, I mean, look, it's uh, it's competition that that's soon to be coming from some of them as well, right? I mean, just like your your partnership with AWS. But I need to go back to that. I know what you're talking about in the earnings report, and um, maybe we need to revisit that in another show. All
0: right, I think these two things go together. So your point, Zach, about uh, the the competition and the situation that uh, MongoDB now has with AWS. It's precisely about aligning the incentives. If uh, you give the Amazon salesperson two products that they can sell, uh, let's say for ease of conversation, that they're equally hard or equally easy to get in the door at the customer. Mm -hmm. All of all else being equal, they will go for the thing that pays them uh, more commission. If one thing pays 50% of the commission of the other, that's a very easy decision for them to make if they look even vaguely fungible. And the, and that's kind of what uh, Snowflake was bemoaning, that some of the, the cloud service providers are better at doing this than others and calling that short-sighted when, when they don't align their incentives. And it is better for, for users, to be clear, it's better for users when uh, the the vendor and the platform aren't fighting Mm-hmm. And so th- that's the that's a benefit, and the role of the the big uh, the, the big the the role of the uh, enterprise account manager, the person who sits at the top of a large team of technical specialists, is maybe not themselves a specialist at all, but can navigate the political intricacies of large bank, large automotive mm-hmm. manufacturer, large telco, large you know public sector org that person still has a role because they can help guide that process. And so incentivizing that person correctly when they have maybe a book of 70-odd products uh, is you know, it's a, it's a dark art. And there was another very interesting piece, which I'm going to have to try and find now, a uh, Twitter thread uh, talking about how large corporations can't be subtle in their messaging. They have to choose one message And ignore the subtleties, even the very valid subtleties, because their audience will not be receptive to that. They will be Mm. receptive only to one big message, and so you have to Mm. double down on that, pick the biggest thing, focus on that until it's fixed, until it's in the place you want it to be, and then you can change your message and focus on another big thing that you want Mm. to to shift. But you can't try to pull two levers at once, or you won't achieve either goal. Interesting. Yeah, I need to pull out the, the Twitter thread and send it to you, I have it somewhere in my history.
1: It's an interesting hypothesis. I, I, am wondering. Well, I'm actually thinking about like how true that is, and in what context, right? Because obviously, when you're dealing with like a massive organization, like a Cisco or an IBM or something, right? Yeah, the example is, was Microsoft. I mean, that is that is incredibly difficult, and and so the message always ends up being at that level, of fundamentally high, like ivory tower and reductive, right? Like that just really feels like the, an, and I'm. I, I don't love that, right? As a former product marketer, right? I love the idea yeah. of a crisp use case based message. And I don't feel like we we get that when we're talking at that sort of 50,000 foot level. But at the same time, I, I do think that, you know, there's something to be learned from consumer marketing where you actually have a thing and that is your thing and that is all the things. But if that is true, I'm not sure that the mega organization has legs, right? At the Right? Because... Because you could imagine four companies within Microsoft or even a dozen, each of which have their own coherent and effective market message that could run simultaneously, but a mega organization can only manage one, right?
0: Unless you do it the Amazon way and have uh, a loose confederation of two pizza teams.
1: Yeah, I think the Amazon way is is strange and, and potentially an emergent property and not a design point.
0: Yeah, which and and anyway, the whole idea of a two-pizza team is confusing to Italians. It's like, what, you have a team of two? This makes no sense. Right. (laughs) You need more people than two on a team.
1: You need more people than two on a team.
0: (laughs) I agree. Anyway, I'm sure we will be coming back to that one, and we'll put a bunch of links in the show notes for people to review at their leisure. A couple of other things that happened. I was heartened somewhat that the apple studio display that i missed out on buying turns out to have a massive flaw uh oh oh yes (laughs) the webcam the webcam is apparently terrible and which wasn't the feature that i was going to buy it for anyway if i'm honest Uh, i have a very nice webcam and, and i'm very keen on the opal camera uh if that ever does give me the option to buy it right now you can only reserve an opal camera but the webcam in the the Apple Studio display is, despite being 12 megapixel, which is not tiny, and despite having a bunch of physical real estate and a whole A13 CPU to run it, uh, apparently can't manage strong light or color balance or center stage, which is the key feature of the thing, is apparently extremely laggy. Apple has promised a software update. Uh, we'll see if that fixes it. But for now, uh, I'm feeling a lot better about my LG ultra wide and separate webcam right now.
1: You know, I'm really glad that you found a way to do away with that regret in your heart. That is good. (laughs) It was good to
0: eat at me from the inside. (laughs) I also found time to write a brief blog post about, uh, well, it turned out not to be that brief. It was brief in my head. Uh, It was about uh, personalization. And why that doesn't work, the promise of the personalized customer experience and how that generally goes wrong. Right, right. And so the link to that's in the show notes as well. And uh, finally, recommendations. I already recommended MongoDB World, 7th to 9th of June in New York City at the Javits Center, the recently redone Javits Center. There is a discount code for 25% off in the show notes. Uh, So if you're thinking of going... Use that discount code and you'll get a quarter off the price, which is worth having. And I also highly enjoyed the Kaiju Preservation Society by John Scalzi, which just dropped this week. I started reading it on my lunch break on the first day and I had to stop because it was making me cry with laughter.
1: Sorry, what's the <laughs> <a> lunch break?
0: <laughs> Hi, Italy again. Right, right. <laughs> we treat Italian. lunch seriously. Right. <laughs> And so that is my recommendation of the week. If you've read any John Scalzi, you kind of know what you're in for. It's that, but possibly even faster paced and lighter hearted. If you don't, this is as good a place as any to get started because it's like a, it's barely a novel. It's on that borderline between novella and novel. And mm. so you can get through it pretty
1: quickly. Yeah. I have no recommendations, but I assume that because Bridgerton is dropping next week, I will be all over that.
0: <laughs> the Duchess approves. <laughs> Well, with that, uh, thank you for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise or on our LinkedIn page. The theme music is by my good friend Renato Podesta. Please do send us suggestions for topics and or guests for future episodes. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.